This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable in PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. This book is dedicated to the five billion people alive today who will perish for all eternity, one by one, over the next 80 years, unless, one, the Holy Spirit makes an historically unprecedented positive move, and two, the Church of Jesus Christ at long last begins to get its act together. The exponential curve of souls has now appeared. Either heaven starts to fill up in earnest, or hell does. Question 191. What do we pray for in the second petition? Answer. In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins and the confirming, conforming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever, and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. Larger Catechism, Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646. We who are reckoned as conservatives in theology are seriously misrepresented if we are regarded as men who are holding desperately to something that is old merely because it is old and are inhospitable to new truths. On the contrary, we welcome new discoveries with all our heart, and we are looking in the Church not merely for a continuation of conditions that now exist, but for a burst of new power. J. Gresham Macon, 1932 Preface What is the biggest problem facing the world today? Is it the weather? Are we facing a new ice age? Oops, sorry, scratch that. That was 1973's looming apocalypse. I meant global warming. Is it that burning fossil fuels creates the greenhouse effect? Or is it rather the high price of fossil fuels, which is pressuring us to consume less of them? Is it atomic power, today the only economically feasible technological alternative to fossil fuels? Is it the hole in the ozone layer? Is it acid rain? Is it the proliferation of nuclear weapons? Is it chemical and biological warfare? Is it international terrorism? Is it AIDS? Is it abortion? Or might it be none of the above? I have a traditional answer to this question. Why traditional? Because the question is itself traditional. The answer to this question has been the same from the day that Cain killed Abel. The biggest problem facing the world is that the vast majority of the people in this world are headed straight to hell. If the world means the people who live on planet Earth, then this is the number one problem on Earth. It can be solved in only one way a huge, rapid, historically unprecedented wave of conversions to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Christians say that anything that happens to an individual on earth is insignificant compared to his eternity, but is this really true? 
It is not true, but this is how Christian evangelists have traditionally described the problem. The problem is not stated correctly. One event that happens to a person on earth is vastly more important than anything that happens to him in eternity, his acceptance or rejection of Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. This event can take place only on earth and in history. Quote, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. End quote. Hebrews 9.27 This covenantal judicial decision will determine where the person spends eternity, so it has to be far more important than eternity itself. After all, something that Adam and Eve did on earth and in history got humanity into this frightful legal position in the first place. Jesus was quite clear about what is most important in life and death and why. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. John 5.24 Is passed from death unto life. This is the heart of the matter. When we say to someone, your history, we mean it as if it's all over for him in our eyes. When at the moment of a person's death God says, your history, he really means your eternity. It is all over for him in God's eyes. These are the only eyes that really count. So the greatest problem facing the world today is the same old problem. Most people have not accepted Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross as their only legitimate, acceptable payment to God, to a God of wrath. How about you? Today the numbers of people on earth are staggering. Between 5 billion and 6 billion people are now alive. These numbers are expected to grow, short of some unforeseen calamity like a plague or world war. But if the gospel continues to be rejected by at least 90% of these people, as is the case today, then most people are facing a gigantic calamity that only Christians accurately foresee. They are headed for eternal wrath. Here is the question of questions. Are the vast majority of these people inevitably doomed to hell? Put another way, are the vast majority of these people predestined by God to hell? We cannot lawfully answer this question. Only God knows. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29.29 but there is nothing in the Bible that tells us that we should assume that the vast majority of them are inevitably doomed. We must work and pray on the assumption that something can be done, and will be done, by God, to overcome this seemingly unsolvable problem, getting the gospel to these people in time. And by the words in time, I mean in history. I mean in my generation. A question of time. It is common in evangelical circles to say that this world is running out of time. This is another way of saying the lost are running out of time. Yes, time is indeed running out, just as fossil fuels are running out. But when? In ten years? A thousand years? Ten thousand years? It makes a difference, a big difference. The question that we need to get answered is this. Is time running out for the people alive today? And the answer is categorically, yes. The average lifespan for people living in industrial nations is about 75 years. If a child gets by his first five years, this figure goes above 80 years. In underdeveloped nations, the lifespan is less, 
especially for newborn children. So I can confidently say that time is running out for these people, and my answer does not depend on any theory regarding the timing of Jesus' second coming. The Church of Jesus Christ now faces a major problem. It is the same old problem that, that it has always faced, but today the stakes are far higher because the number of souls on the line is so much larger. These people are spiritually dead. If they do not respond favorably in history to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will remain spiritually dead for all eternity. They will not die spiritually. They are already dead spiritually. They enter history with God's declaration of guilty as charged against them. This is their legacy from Adam, their spiritual birth wrong. I contend in this book that the concern of most evangelical Christians is misplaced today. For over a century, their primary theological concern has been the dating of the second coming of Christ. Speculation regarding this event and Christians' appropriate response to it has governed both the worldview and actual strategies of the majority of those denominations, mostly headquartered in the United States, that call themselves evangelical. In short, various theories of the second coming of Christ, especially its dating, supposedly imminent, have overshadowed the incontestable fact of world population growth and its implications for world evangelism. When the highly debatable timing of a future event becomes more important to a person than his response to a visible, measurable, threatening event in the present, we call that person out of touch with reality, if not mentally deranged. But when millions of Christians regard the dating of the pre-tribulation rapture as more important than the church's efforts at evangelism, or worse, when they tie these evangelism efforts primarily to the dating of this future eschatological event, we have called this understanding the times. When missions fundraisers come into churches and tell their members to give more to missions because when that last person is converted to Christ who is scheduled for salvation, Jesus will come again to rapture his church. The missions board has missed the point. I actually heard such an appeal for funds in a Reformed Presbyterian church Evangelical Synod, a very peculiar use of the doctrine of predestination. The idea behind the conversion to saving faith in Jesus Christ is to transform the way men live and die, not to end history. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. John 10, 10b. We are to be overcomers in life, not overleavers. Evangelism Explosion thermonuclear. It is my hope and prayer that the spread of the gospel of salvation will take a quantum leap in my generation, or at least in the generation immediately behind me. It is my hope and prayer that presently lost people's positive response to the gospel will reach unprecedentedly high percentages in my generation. This means that I am praying for an unprecedented historical discontinuity, a worldwide reversal of the growth of Satan's earthly kingdom in my generation. I do not mean a reversal of merely his external kingdom, I mean his spiritual kingdom. Satan's kingdom has both X aspects, spiritual and institutional. It is both supernatural and historical. What this book argues is this, so is God's kingdom. This is a simple thesis on the surface, yet complex beneath. While most Christians will nod their heads in agreement to the question, does God's kingdom have an institutional aspect to it? since they are members of his church, when asked about the specifics of God's institutional kingdom outside the church and family, they grow vague. This is a serious problem. 
While I do not believe it is the biggest problem there is, it is an aspect of that larger problem of world evangelism. It is an aspect of the question, how should we then live? The, this question is basic to personal salvation. If ye love me, keep my commandments. John 14:15. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. John 15:10. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. 1 John 1, 3-5 It could not be any clearer. We must keep his commandments. But what are these commandments? Do they lose all of their authority outside the door of the local church and Christian home? Or are there commandments that are supposed to govern all of our thoughts and actions in every sphere of life? If the answer to this last question is yes, then the next question is obvious. What are these commandments? Also the following question. Where do we find these commandments? If the answer is, no, God's commandments do not govern all of our thoughts and actions, then this question should be obvious. Then why does God judge us for whatever we think, say, and do? Jesus warned, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Matthew 12:36. Paul warned, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 Also, Paul said, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Are these thoughts only those that pertain to personal salvation, the church and the Christian family? If God threatens to bring sanctions against us, then he must have ethical standards governing his sanctions. After all, he is not a capricious God. But where do we find God's standards, laws? In the Bible, right? But some Christians answer no, or at least not only in the Bible. Then I ask, does the Bible have answers for all of our fundamental moral questions? I also ask, does the Bible supply us with the presuppositions necessary to conduct all of our scientific and intellectual investigations? If the answer to both questions, again, is no, then the Bible is turned into, one, a supplementary handbook to man's autonomous moral insights based on universal natural law, or else, two, a handbook on personal mysticism. Possibly it becomes both. In fact, it is neither. This book is written to promote belief in the sovereignty of God's law, not man's law. It is written to promote evangelism, not mysticism. Beyond Mysticism Here is what this book is all about. A discussion of the Bible as the sole authority that should govern our opinions about everything. I contend that the Bible is authoritative in every field. But Christian scholars from the very early days of the Church have insisted on placing Greek philosophy, the original secular humanism, above the Bible. Or at least side by side the Bible. But the Bible says concerning itself that nothing is equal to it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 1 Timothy 3.16 The Bible corrects all other books, thoughts, and actions. 
So, to place anything side by side the Bible is to place it above the Bible. Yet this is what Christian philosophers have been doing for almost 2,000 years. We have already concluded that the Bible does speak to every area of life, haven't we? Of course we have, so let's go forward. The Bible, therefore, lays down the law for every field. Family life, sociology, health, economics, education, politics, biology, geology, and even mathematics. The experts in each of these fields, as well as all the others, are required by God to go to the Bible in search of their particular field's operational first principles, as well as for some of the actual content facts of their fields. They do not lay down the law to the Bible. Their particular fields of study do not dictate to the Bible the theory and content of truth. This means that the Bible is relevant for social theory. So, where are the books that explain what the biblical view of social theory is? There have been hybrids in history, of course, such as Scholasticism's attempted fusion of Stoic natural law theory and the Bible. More recently, there has been liberation theology's attempted fusion of Marxism and biblical rhetoric. But there is only one self-conscious body of literature that relies solely on the Bible in order to establish its first principles of social theory, theonomy or Christian reconstruction. This book is my attempt to show you why this is the case. A brief word of encouragement to secular academics. Because of the title of this book, there may be a few secular academics who decide to read it. These days, millennialism has become a hot topic in academic circles. Already, this preface has lost some of these readers. They have closed the book in disgust. Why this book is written by a Bible-believing Christian? Furthermore, I was expecting a detailed study that would include references to at least 73 recent articles in German theological journals. Look, I am on my way to heaven. I am not about to read 73 or even 10 scholarly articles by liberal German theologians. In the realm of academics, such a task is about as close to hell on earth as anyone can come. Besides, the reason why some English-speaking scholar wants a book on summarizing the latest findings of German theological scholarship, which will be completely refuted by other German theologians within five years, is so that he does not have to wade through the stuff, even if he reads German fluently, which he probably does not. The secular scholar may also ask himself, why should I read a polemical book by one Christian against other Christians? Well, for one thing to gain new insights. After all, prominent historians today read the polemical books of previous Christians. For example, the output of the King English Puritans' pamphlets, pamphlet wars of 1640 to 1660 in order to find out what was going on. Why not read today's polemical pieces a couple of hundred years before they, they too become hot topics for future historians? Why not find out early what is going on? A word of encouragement. I did not just recently fall off an academic turnip truck. There is meat here. I am applying some fundamental biblical themes to the modern economic, academic world of social theory. This project may scare away the average Christian, who will regard it as far too worldly. But it should not scare away a serious academic. For instance, can you define social theory? I provide a unique operational definition in Chapter 2. It will help anyone to make sense out of the present debates over social theory and social systems. Look, do you really want to read Talcott Parsons? So stay with it. You will learn about some of the most fundamental issues in the Bible, 
and why the vast majority of Bible-believing Christians pay no attention to them. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.